Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material from all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links support the show at no extra cost to you. In Season 12, the focus was big franchises and series. We covered both Paddington films, adapted from the beloved children's book character created by Michael Bond. Oh, I love those films so much. Hugh Grant is perfect. For our Pitch Perfect series, the first film was adapted from Mickey Rapkin's nonfiction book about collegiate acapella competitions. It's like a short story of my life, literally. I lived college acapella. Sing it, brother. I lived college acapella. <laughs> I didn't mean literally. <laughs> You know who you're talking to, right? The Twilight Saga dominated the season with five films adapted from Stephanie Meyer's vampire romance novels, Twilight, New Moon, Eclipse, and the two Breaking Dawn parts. Dominated with awkward romance and nonsense logic is more like it. <laughs> that too. Another Thin Man brought us back to Dashiell Hammett's only Thin Man sequel based on other Hammett material, The Farewell Murder, that wasn't just based on the characters from the first film. We talked about Train Spotting and its sequel, T2 Train Spotting, adapted from Irvine Welsh's novels. Ugh, I hate the sequel's name. I do too. And the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy, adapted from J.R.R. Tolkien's epic fantasy series. Love these. Extended editions all the way, baby. Plus, all the Mission Impossible films based on the 1960s TV series. And we've still got at least one more to go. Members got to hear us chat about The Hustler and The Color of Money, adapted from Walter Tevis's books. Get all of these books and more at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read from the movies we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals.
I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. <laughs> Before sunrise is over. Isn't everything we do in life a way to be loved a little more? All right, I have an admittedly insane idea, but if I don't ask you this, it's just going to haunt me the rest of my life. I have no idea what your situation is, but I feel like we have some kind of uh, connection, right? Yeah, me too. Great. So listen, here's the deal. This is what we should do. You should get off the train with me here in Vienna and come check out the town. We just got into Vienna today, and we're looking for something fun to do. Pregnancy English? Yeah, of course, yeah. Because uh, we speak German for a change. Now I'm going to call my best friend in Paris, who I'm supposed to have lunch with in eight hours. Okay. Okay. Dring, dring. Pick up the phone. Uh, oh, hello. I don't think I'm going to be able to make it for lunch today. I'm sorry. I met a guy on the train and I got off with him in Vienna. We're still there. Are you crazy? Probably. Andy, Before Sunrise, part of the Before Trilogy, Richard Linklater, and we are doing this series. I have to tell you, this, this movie has some very high praise. Did you notice that? I didn't remember when we because I I I saw it long ago, and I, then I guess I was finished with it and didn't think about it. But looking at it again, it's it is there are people who really really love this movie, really love it, and that surprised me. I I didn't remember it as quite so beloved. Is that because of your own personal feelings? Is that where we're going with this? No, I no legitimately. I did not remember this movie as this huge and, and mostly it's related to I as I was turning it on, I was like, why did we choose this trilogy? Like, I I don't remember why we we chose it because it was a franchise trilogy, uh, because we're interested in talking about Linklater. And then I it as I started looking it up, I was very surprised at how many people feel very strongly about what this movie inspires in them. OK, OK. It's interesting that um, that you're so surprised by that because I mean it is something that did spur a trilogy, and I feel like, I know I feel like if it was a one off that you know it, you might it, and it was this popular you might be more surprised but when it's something that's this popular and ends up leading to more films yeah I feel yeah. like that's kind of an expected place to <laughs> to be I I guess that's I guess that's true it just seems like such a simple. Uh, a simple film that it's the kind of film that wouldn't have made a trilogy. And the fact that I did, I saw the second one, but gave the third no attention. I haven't seen the third one. Um, and so I don't spend a lot of time thinking about the before trilogy. And so it surprised me again. Let's just say that's it. I was surprised. And here we are. Uh, how did you, uh, you is this one that's a repeat view for you? I, I mean, I know I've seen it a few times before this watch. Um, I likely saw it. I, I know I didn't see it in theater. I probably saw it sometime after that, like rented it. And then I know I watched it again before I watched Before Sunset. And then I don't, I like you, I, I somehow I missed Before Midnight. But I do enjoy these characters. And I actually really enjoy um, the way that Linklater crafts this story. And um, I really, I'm, I guess I end up being in the camp that really does enjoy the film. So I, I think that there's something... Uh, kind of magical and and very um, heartwarming with this film. That's good. I'm excited to to hear more about what you think. Um, you know, it's so it's rated uh, NC-17. <laughs> it actually is rated R, surprisingly, for some strong language. Isn't that interesting? 
This is really? a film. Is it yeah. is it in German? Are the Germans swearing to one another it's, horrifically? What it boils down to is the number of times that the F word is used. You may recall that that is a silly thing that the MPAA has established, that if you use it more than a certain number of times, then the films automatically are, especially if they're used in a sexual connotation. That almost instantly turns it into an R. Because, you know, they're afraid of sexuality. They're so afraid. And they're terrified of words. I think that's the other the other thing. Just yes. really scared of words. We, yes. as a society, are scared of words. That's Not guns. Not blood, nope. but words. Not guns or blood, but words and words about sex. Good. We're doing great. Okay. Before sunrise. Before before our conversation about before sunrise, <laughs> What is? where do you stand with Richard Linkletter? Like, where did you first come into Linkletter as a filmmaker? Do you recall? Well, Andy, I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you asked. Richard Linklater, I uh, I started watching Rickard, 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 I call him Ricard, but it's a little game that we play. Um, I started watching uh, Ricard Linklater uh, before I was paying attention to uh, what were the films that he was doing, I think. Like, I'm, I'm sure I watched, you know, Slacker and Dazed and Confused, um, before I was paying attention to the fact that they were Linklater films. I actually feel quite fondly toward uh, those movies and Suburbia. I really, uh, I enjoy my time with Suburbia. And then I find the films like uh, Waking Life and A Scanner Darkly fascinating to watch. And I really enjoy my experience there, even though, interestingly, I'd probably call those minimalist films in some way, like in the Wikipedia uh, way, you know, for those who are not members, we had a conversation in our member pre-show and uh, we were talking about, you know, what makes a minimalist film and the fact that Wikipedia uh, has a struggling uh, relationship um, with what that means. Um, so uh, I I really enjoy those. I didn't I wasn't keen on movies like Fast Food Nation. Um, you know, I didn't like the way it was adapted. I felt like it was I mean, I'm I'm glad it got made. I didn't care for it. Uh, I didn't like everybody. What's some I enjoyed. Where'd you go, Bernadette? I think it's a I think it's kind of a roller coaster for me. What about you? Are you a, a link head? A link laggy? <laughs> I, he, I, I kind of am the same. I fluctuate with uh, interest and disinterest in his projects. I've seen uh, 10 movies that he's directed. Uh, so, you know, maybe close to half of the projects that he's done. I seem to have missed some of the big ones that uh, I am quite interested in checking out. Like, I really do still want to see Bernie. I've heard great things about that one. Um, Fast Food Nation, I actually missed that one. I'm curious about me and Orson Welles, that one that he did. I haven't seen that. What I ha- I do, I can't believe I didn't name drop School of Rock. I adore School of Rock. I think it's great. So go ahead. As we talked about in our Pitch Perfect uh, trilogy series, that was the highest grossing musical comedy until Pitch Perfect 2 knocked it out of that uh, uh, slot. So... Uh, yeah, it may be his most successful film. Like when I look at the list of films, my hunch is that's probably at the box office, the biggest box office that he's had. Boyhood is probably the one that's had the most recognition award wise. And I think a lot of that falls to his his style of storytelling. And that's what I think is interesting about here, about what he does, like all the way back to Slacker. 
which is his second film after It's Impossible to Learn to Plow by Reading Books, which is his first feature, which is a very uh, probably minimalist sort of film. Um, he got into these films that were very conversational, and that seemed to be something that he was very focused on. And it didn't seem until my recollection, The Newton Boys, where he suddenly was actually going to do a like a real story. And that was just kind of a, you know, a gangster story. Um, like a period gangster story. And then he kind of goes back to waking life. And so he he's a very interesting filmmaker in that he started in kind of art house cinema with Slacker and always seems to go back to it. Like there are a lot of filmmakers who start there and then once they get out, they just kind of stay in kind of the Hollywood system. But when you look at the sorts of projects that he keeps doing, I mean, yeah, he does uh, Last Flag Flying, which was that military uh, thing with the three vets and um, Where'd You Go Bernadette, which was an adaptation. But then he turns around and does Apollo 10 and a half, A Space Age Childhood, which is that uh, kind of animated story that is kind of, uh, you know, a somewhat biopic and somewhat a little more quirky and, and different than his other sorts of stories. So he seems to always be happy to kind of play in that space. And you look at what he did with Boyhood, the fact that they filmed that over so many years, like that's what what he does. And with Before Sunrise, it it seemed to be this thing that he wanted. I mean, there's a sense of a biographical, autobiographical element to the story. But it seemed to be this idea of let's explore this conversation with these two people over a period over like, I don't know, 12, 15, 17 hours, something like that. And and just have this relationship develop in this kind of bubble out of time before they have to return to reality. And I think that's really interesting to see what he did. And then we'll talk about this over the next uh, couple episodes, how they decided to progress that story. And so I don't know, I find him to be an interesting filmmaker. I. I don't know. I've seen half of his films. I like maybe half of those, but I find he's a compelling filmmaker. And I, I guess that's where I, I land with him is he's always a filmmaker who will pique my uh, curiosity, even if I don't end up going to watch his films. I could not agree more with that assessment and uh, that that I think there is something to see with his films. And it's one of the reasons I was so interested in coming back to this one uh, and this trilogy to see what the experience is watching these films, especially after so many years. And so I have to say, I feel like the first time I saw it, I was very much in this sort of contextual space where I could watch it and listen to these characters and hear what they're saying and really empathize with what they were going through. And um, and I think I connected with the aspirational view or the aspirational sort of script in there and was able to internalize it as my experience of what I would love my sort of uh, a love story to be like, it's just something that I, I could really connect with at the time. I cannot connect with it anymore, almost at all. I find both of these characters so impossibly insufferable. I want to punch them in the neck, both of them. I think it is impossible to imagine how uh, she could find anything appealing in Ethan Hawke's character. I just... He, they grate on me. I felt like I wanted to pluck the tiny hairs out of my nose for most of this movie until <laughs> the very end when they oh uh, and to, two parts when the uh the actors are being rude to them on the bridge i thought that was pleasant i thought they deserved more rudeness and when they there there is this weird magical experience for me when they are standing on the train station and they're about to separate it 
twisted my guts in like the most intense way. So how I could swing from hating the choices I've made in my life that lead me to watching most of this movie to, my God, this is a romantic transcendent moment is amazing in this movie. Like I ended the movie feeling actually moderately okay with that experience, even though I hate these people so much. Like I really could not stand most of it. The dialogue felt forced. It felt like written, not written, like improv, not improv, like they were trying to write it and be romantic. It felt like there were way too many people, people's impressions of what romance is in this movie. And as a result, I had a, a more negative opinion on it than most. It was it was pretty boring. Do you recall at all if this was the same stance you had when you first saw it? Or do you feel like it's changed because you're now an old grumpy man? I think it's the old grumpy, grumpy man uh, bit, because that's what I mean. Like the, the first time I watched this movie, I think I was in a place of uh, sort of more connecting with it. Like, I, I you know, the movie came out and uh, like what, what, what year did it come out? It 95. was uh, before Sunrise was 95. And so I was not married yet. I didn't see this like I was living in korea at the time and so i'm sure 95? i didn't see it in korea i must no you weren't living in korea 95 96 i graduated in no you're right it was 96 97 so i was i must have seen it in college yeah when we were seniors and i feel like it was at that point i pro- i probably took the girl i was dating to see it maybe that's how it was jeez anyway I feel like it was something that really connected with a young me, a, a me that wanted to travel and do all this stuff and have that kind of spark of romance that would last to an all night conversation and such a, a perilous departure. I thought that I, I think that was I could really personalize it. And um, man, uh, it's, it's amazing to me what a little distance gets that uh, gives me. Well, that's it's interesting to me that that you do have that reaction, because I feel like I'm probably reacting similarly to how I reacted when I saw it uh, back, you know, in, I don't know, 96, probably somewhere around there um, for the first time. I find it magical and I really enjoy the characters. I love the way it flows. I don't feel like it's written. It feels pretty natural the way things are kind of moving and and how things are going back and forth and and the flow of everything like i i really find uh that i just i connected with the vibe of it all and i enjoyed this this sense of space that we're left with with these two people here where they're trying i, I don't know it's an interesting moment and i like the way the film sets it up where i, I i'm trying to remember exactly I think that it's, uh, is it Jesse who says this, but they, they're talking about like how they're, they're, um, kind of in this space where everything is kind of almost stopped, you know? And I, I feel like it kind of creates that bubble where, I mean, obviously time is ticking, but they get off this train and largely, I mean, they're in a place they don't know, and they're just kind of wandering and having these kind of stream of consciousness conversations and um, it's not really until that moment as they're walking back toward the train station or yeah, to the train station in the morning. And he actually says something like, oh, we're, we're back in real time. And that's like the click. And and like everything before that was like this kind of this beautiful, um, just kind of flowing um, stream. And I, I like the way that it just has this this tone to it. And, and I don't know, though. 
the sense of love and cynicism and connection and uh, the way that they they bond and and find things to connect about. I don't know. I just I found it to be uh, meaningful, and I can see why uh, so many people really praise this film and this trilogy uh, the way they do because I, there is an interesting connection. And I don't know. For me, I feel. I mean, I don't know. It's one of those things where it's just like, you know, having this sort of experience when you're young, I feel a lot of people always want to do something like this and don't necessarily do it. And I mean, I certainly had experiences that weren't like this, but that were still meaningful in some capacity that I hold near and dear to my heart. And and I think that's, you know, part of the reason that I connect with it so much is because there is that feeling of youth and that sense of being in a place and, and you know, trying to start figuring yourself out. And I, I like the way that this film explores that. There is something strange about, like, the the feeling of... Uh, I, I think part of the, the thing that I struggle with is that there's so much of it that feels like I'm eavesdropping on somebody else's conversation, and I don't, I don't like the way they talk to each other. Like, it doesn't feel uh, natural, and I don't... I, it doesn't feel like... Uh, it's hard for me to say this like uh, authentically because I do find I really like movies that don't have like narrative driving uh, them in some cases. I don't like this one. It feels like it's weirdly on rails at the same time that it's absolutely meandering. Um, you know, we, we just sort of drive with them their walking conversation through, you know, uh, fields, uh, cemeteries, uh, restaurants. Um, they, uh, th- there's the, uh, the poet who says, uh, you know, give me a word, I'll write you a poem, uh, which I, I just, it's just so hyper cringy for me. Like, I just couldn't, I, I couldn't get through those sequences fast enough. And at the same time, sort of wondering, like, how are they going to build to something when I'm feeling really pretty empty through the whole thing? And and then they get to that train station and they click back in, as you say, the switch is flipped and I'm suddenly in the story. I, it, it was a very strange feeling for me. Are you in the story at the start when they're first on the train before they get off? Like when they actually first have their meeting? Not really. I found their their meal time together was was just rough conversation. I was like, I would never choose to eavesdrop on this conversation with if I were sitting in that train car. And that's kind of what I want, right? With a movie like this, I want to be sitting, if I'm going to watch a story like this, like my dinner with Andre, if I want to watch a story like this, then I want them to be having a conversation with two people that are charismatic enough for me to want to pay attention over their shoulder and kind of hear like, are they having a really interesting conversation? And I didn't get that from this movie. Um, I, I found their personalities like that mix of you know i'm i'm gonna slowly reveal to you that i'm actually a romantic um you know wrapped in a cynic's body i felt like pretty early reality bites gen xy kind of uh a worldview that i think i just am, am finished with i i just didn't find it an interesting character mix well uh, but i think that's why it works <laughs> Yeah, I, <laughs> because this is the mid '90s. This is that period of time, and these are those people. And so I, I, I don't know. I, I feel like they are very much, you know, '90s youth, and this is kind of the sensibilities that I think was running rampant. And I think you know the reason that perhaps you connected with it more was because 
both of us were in that mindset. In that's this who we were. Space. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly yeah. who we were. And I yeah. mean, to a certain extent, I mean, you do like as soon as you finish college, I mean, you go off and live in Korea for a year. And so it's like I did exactly that. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, you, you're kind of off doing your own little thing. And so there's an interesting element to that world of of um, kind of exploring the world and finding your your place in it. And I, I do think there is a little bit of that. And to that end, it's going to be interesting to see how you feel as their lives progress every nine years um, over the next couple films. I think I think it will, too. Um, and here's an interesting aside. Right. So you you saw Waking Life, right? Yes. Jesse and Celise have like, a, I think it's less than two minutes. They have a conversation in Waking Life. It's an animated conversation. And they are, they're in Austin and they're living together. Now that, of course, is non-canon to the Before Trilogy because they are, um, you know, because, you know, Waking Life takes place in a dream state, right? So it's, it, it's not, <laughs> it's not real. But I, as I age... I, and I remember having this con- this sort of conversation with myself that I would have preferred seeing that part of the movie, like how their relationship, um, you know, comes together. That I would have loved to have seen them come back together and give us, you know, more of a what was that Alan Alda one? Uh, was it same time next year? Like just that that experience of exploring their lives together, um, you know, and and having the, had them meet six months later. Like, I think that would have been a really um, a more interesting story for me to watch them age together and not every nine years. So I'll be interesting to see how I age or how my age has aged with the movie uh, as they get older and have these kinds of conversations. I think generally I found their Gen X-y youth a, a real detractor for me. I, I was I, I, I was impatient in, in the same way I was not able to what, what I'm hearing you say is that you were able to connect with that part of you to still find like that connection with this movie. And I just could not. You have since killed that part of your of your youth is what you're saying. Well, I stuffed a <laughs> stuffed a ball gag in its mouth. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Keeping it in the box. <laughs> Bring out the gimp. Is that what you say when you're ready to explore your youth again? I do. That's it. Bring out the gimp. <laughs> Pete's feeling frisky. Let's watch Before Sunrise. The, okay, uh, well, that's funny. You don't connect with the youth, but or, or with the characters. But what I mean, it, this is it's a tricky film to talk about performances and and actors in relation to the characters, because I feel like there's so much of Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy infused in the two characters. But I am curious to at least kind of get your thoughts on what do you feel that the two actors are bringing to the table here? And we should just before we have this conversation, we should just say that uh, Linkletter wrote this skip this script with Kim Crizen, who, or I'm not sure how you say her name, Crizen, Crizan, yeah. who he had, uh, she had been in a few of his films before, um, like, or what was she in? She was in uh, Slacker. She was in Slacker, Slacker. Days and Confused. She ended up in Waking Life also, yeah. Um, and he he brought her on specifically because he wanted to make sure that he could balance the tone between male and female um, voices. And then it took a long time. It took nine months to find the actors for it. And by the time they finally latched on to Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy, they went through a process of actually kind of reworking the script. The two of them um, have, you know, uncredited 
reworking of the script. According to Julie Delpy, it was like largely rewritten by the two of them. Yeah. And we will see later that they actually are co-credited on the subsequent films. So there is very much a part of them in it. So to that end, how do these two actors feel for you as far as like the way, what they're bringing to it? And uh, again, it's it's tricky to balance with the characters, but I'm curious, uh, you know, your take on the actors here. Well, I, you know, I'm in the bag for Ethan Hawke generally, but more his like the the stuff that has come since he's aged. Right. Um, I, uh, you know, Predestination, uh, The Purge, Moon Knight. I really I love Moon Knight. Uh, I haven't seen Black Phone yet, but I think that's a, a super interesting choice. And so so I really but I, I feel like this I could say the exact same thing about reality bites that I could say about this, like this era of 90s Ethan Hawke represents something that I'm just sort of done with. I don't enjoy revisiting this this particular time in film. It's grating to me. So I really like Ethan Hawke. I like the stuff that he does. He's been around for ever, 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 ever. And there's I definitely like more of his stuff than than I don't. So this movie, you know, he's he's doing something. It's more like a a personality exercise, like he's it's or therapy, like he's he's doing something. He's exercising a romantic demon that he's got to get out in these movies. And it's fine. Julie Delpy, (laughs) I I actually really quite enjoy. Uh, I I think Julie Delpy is is super charismatic and and uh, a lovely person. And I've always I think part of the reason that I, I likely loved the movie, uh, you know, early on was that I had that a, a super crush on her at the time of this movie. And so me personalizing the, my experience with the movie in the 90s when it came out was largely I wonder what it would be like if if I were Ethan Hawke in a in a train side relationship with this person because she's super charming. And I and and so, you know, I wonder what that would look like. So I am really uh, like I I think she's she's great it, watching it this time. I was like, oh, you know, I, it turns out she has some of the very same personality traits that are super grating in Ethan Hawke. It's that same sort of 90s, uh, mid-90s sort of Gen X thing that I'm sort of done with. I have not seen as many things of hers uh, as I have of Ethan Hawke. Are you, uh, what's your, what's your situation on Julie Delpy? Well, we talked about her on the show when we did our Europa Europa episode, um, which she had done five years before this film. Yeah. I mean, she is incredibly busy she's been in tons of stuff and also has started her own directing career and uh like writing directing i mean she was writing at the time that this came out which is part of the reason and so is ethan hawk that's part of the reason that they had them work on the script with them but i mean she is very i mean she's keeping herself busy as a writer director producer and even a composer like she's really busy doing all sorts of stuff i haven't seen a ton of her films you know this the the um uh, unfortunately, in American Werewolf in Paris, I did see that. Uh, of course, the Three Colors trilogy I saw. Random things, like I saw The Hoax, uh, that, you know, is an okay movie. And, of course, things like Avengers Age of Ultron. She's She pops up and stuff. The Bachelors, which they, they talked about on uh, Trailer Rewind. So, uh, you know, she's an interesting actress, and I really do enjoy seeing her perform. But I just haven't seen a lot of her work. Did you say you saw Killing, Killing Zoe? No. That's that's one that I feel like gets mentioned with her a lot. And I, I Roger Avery, 1993. Uh, I'm curious about that. Yeah, I haven't seen that I'm one. I'm going to put it on the list. 
But I do think, I mean, you're right. I think that there's an, there is this element of her that feels very much the way that she is in the film. She feels very Gen X. And even though she's coming to the story as kind of a, a very much a European character, she still has that feel to her. And so I don't know, for me, again, I just kind of connect with that vibe with these two characters. And I do find that, you know, it's funny, when I think of Ethan Hawke, particularly in this period of time, I feel like he is the sort of actor who is really getting into writing, you know, poetry. And I, I, I feel like he even published a book of poetry or something. I can't remember if that's accurate or not, but I feel like he's the sort of person who uh, has always been that way, but I think this period, probably because he was you know very much Gen X like us, was exploring his own artistic angles and and coming up with poetry and finding these performances where he could do things that were a lot more interesting and unique. And so when you look at his career, especially in this period, I feel like he was really jumping into the link letter mindset of exploring different types of storytelling. And so, um, because it's interesting, like he did Reality Bites a year before, you you brought that up as kind of another of these Gen X films. And, you know, it's I, I think that that's an interesting comparison to this as far as characters, because I feel like there's, like, if you're going to watch a film that is still going to, it's going to feel more Hollywood, but probably will still annoy you with its Gen X characters. Look at that one. Well, yeah. Right? It's, oh, it's the course. same. It's the characters, I think, so much more than the actual story that is likely what's um, what's irking you about them. I think that's really true, Andy. I think that's really true. And I think you could take this movie and put it in 1975 or 19 or 2005 and put um, and put, uh, you know, put different uh, uh, people in it. And it might be a movie that I really enjoy. I find this whole, the whole sort of aesthetic super grating and the philosophy like there is something nice about watching a movie where the relationship builds toward uh, for lack of a better word, climax uh, in uh, through discussions around philosophy, because that's one of the things that this movie is really trying to uh, land on, which is like this is this is a relationship where people are getting to know one another over the course of this time based on what they think about stuff and what they think about stuff is going to allow them to either open the gate to a romantic relationship or not. They, they've met cute on the train. They've listened to the, the Germans argue. I, I do like there is a there's a trope I didn't know um, existed, but I found on TV tropes. Uh, reality has no subtitles that if somebody is speaking a language that's not the core language and they don't understand the language, then we shouldn't. And uh, so there are no subtitles of the German people arguing. So we don't get to know because Ethan Hawke doesn't know or Jesse doesn't know how to speak German. And so I, I that's an interesting trope I'd never heard framed that way. But I kind of like that that's how they that's how they kind of connect over this other people's fight. Um, and then they start talking. The, uh, and, and so there is something interesting about that that leads to sex in the grass. So I, I like the idea that the premise of the movie is based on them getting into one another's minds, even if I'm not crazy about who they are or what those minds represent. I like the idea that this movie is presenting that that a relationship, a deep relationship can come out of this sort of constant debate and discussion and sharing of an experience that is for all intents and purposes, kind of unique. So that's all really good. Like, that's all good stuff that I can absolutely get behind. The The challenge then for me is that when I don't love the people, uh, it just makes it hard 
to to be patient through the rest of the story. And, well, and, yeah, and, uh, and that's so. true of any film. That's fine. Uh, that is exactly. But th- this film has nothing else, right? That this movie is only that. Like it's very hard to latch on to something else. Sure. I don't get a feeling. It's not actually very interestingly shot. It's not like Lee Daniels cinematography is not particularly compelling to me. There's nothing surprising or engaging going on in the camera. It's really uh, a lot of walk and talk and sit and talk and and when. You don't love just the two people, but you're only getting the two people. It's hard to fall in love with the movie. I, I Yeah, it's interesting. You, you brought up the cinematography, and I can see your point. But at the same time, I also think an interesting element that Linkletter does in the film is choose to like have a lot of long takes or where the camera is just walking like a dolly or whatever the case may be and or handheld. Uh, on a on a steady cam, and it's just a long shot as the actors converse. And so, to that end, I really liked that they were giving us a, a longer kind of a, a, a moment to have these these times with the characters. And I really did enjoy that, and I thought that was was pretty nice. It's something that we really haven't brought up in a very long time um, is Cinemetrics, the the site that tells you the average shot length. For movies, and I thought this might be an interesting series to look at uh, to get a sense. The average shot length in seconds for this film is 10.6 seconds. The longest shot in the film is 344.7 seconds, um, which is five and three quarters minutes. So that was the longest shot in the film. And, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm i always impressed when filmmakers are able to kind of craft a story where you have these really long shots. And I mean, a five plus almost six minute shot. I mean, it is pretty long. And even if it is just conversation that's happening, like there's a lot of stuff that needs to go into kind of making that work and putting it into into play. And so to that end, I, I think that there's it, it's simple cinematography, but I think it's designed in a way to allow the conversations to unfold. And whether you're connecting with them or not, I suppose. The, the the important thing is that it's designed in a way to allow them to unfold. Yeah. I, you know, there are some interesting, like, beats, like, uh, of, of their conversation that I think are, are interesting and telling. And I think one of them that actually was, uh, you know, a high point of, you know, a movie that's kind of low points for me. But when they're having this conversation and they, they do the fake phone bit where they call their friends to talk about their experience that they had in the restaurant, I actually thought that was really uh, that was an interesting choice uh, for them because of, you know, what's going on sort of psychosocially between them and portraying this, this like what the voices in their head uh, are saying versus what they, they would say out loud to their to their partners in terms of an exercise in depicting romance. I kind of like the depersonalization of it and the way they they would talk to their friends. I thought that was an interesting sort of aesthetic choice that that did work for me. So I, you know, I want to make sure I sort of celebrate that like there are some things where the two people are maybe not acting like themselves that i find i find really uh, you know fun sort of frivolous do you know where that long shot was uh it's a good question i'm not exactly sure where that shot was there's so many walked i'm actually scrubbing the movie right now and uh i don't know how to find it on cinemetrics 
there are two, like I'm talking about that shot where they're talking to one another on the phone, and there are two sequences, I think two, maybe three, where Linklater has this choice where he's he's there in a location, they're at a restaurant or on the train or whatever, and he does these cutaways to other people at other tables and showcasing, here's what the experience is of these people, and now here are three people at another table smoking a cigarette, and here's an old lady drinking a beer talking to somebody, and that, I, they do that, I think, on the train and to, in another restaurant and then in the restaurant where they're talking to each other and then at the end of the movie they cut around to the he cuts around to all the locations where jesse and celine have been over the course of their night and they're empty those locations are empty those are uh more um interesting sort of choices to me that that i i think were are you know part of the storytelling that that i think work like i like the idea of how they how he cuts in the reality of the location and of these other people having conversations that we could be eavesdropping on and then taking us back to, you know, our principal relationship, you know, and even at the end, here are where all these other locations, there's nothing going on here, but now we're going to cut back to the train station and their departure, which I thought was, I, I thought was a good choice. Look at me with all these good things. This is praise. Uh, no, it's great. It's great. I, I mean, I really enjoy those moments too. And I, I, that, that beat at the end that kind of the world waking up i guess you could almost say um and and where you get to see all those spaces again was uh was kind of touching and and really interesting in a way that i I think reflects on what uh what a space can do in a film you know and I, i think that's pretty interesting I, I really think so. And it, it's a little bit jarring because actually I, I said it wrong. They actually they say goodbye and then they do all this, you know, right. all these cuts back as they're on the train. Over. They're on separate we, yeah. trains. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There were bus and train. And I think that is a uh, I, I think that's actually a really uh, a neat touch. Uh, and it's kind of surprising. Like it took me a second to realize, oh, we've been there. I think it was it was the alley and the crate to realize that, um, oh, this is familiar. This location, these locations look totally different in the absence of the relationship that was in them last night. They, there's no magic anymore. There's no sense yeah. of life. It's just, it's a space. It doesn't have the uh, the same tone to it. So, Yes. Yeah, yeah. Totally. Um, totally. That The long shot, the five-minute shot uh, starts in the 18th minute of the film. That's somewhere around 18th there. 18th minute. Yeah. It's shot number 148 of the film, which is they've numbered the shots, 530 total shots in the film. Interesting, because at minute 18, they're talking to the rude actors on the bridge. (laughs) Oh, then they get on the bus or the trolley or whatever. It is the. Oh, so it's the shot while they're on the bus. Yeah, they're talking on the bus. Okay. That's what it is. Yep. So it's a train and talk. I was thinking about that as I was as I was watching this, like the complexities of a film project. I mean, a bus is easier. You know, you just put a bunch of extras on it and you have your crew on it and you just kind of drive around and just have the bus driver kind of follow a certain path as they just kind of have this conversation. But I was thinking about the complexities that when they're doing it on the train and like, God, they have to like they they're walking through the train. So you're seeing all these different people and then you're having to, you know, kind of cast this and just say, okay, so this train is going to go. We're just going to follow this route all day long and just film this conversation until we're done. And it's like, ugh, it seems like so much work and time and money and everything. 
<laughs> it's so much work. God, making movies. So it's much so work. hard. <laughs> so hard. Oh, God. Uh, well, okay. What what other uh, hot points do you have? What other? Oh, a couple other points. First, the music. I did like that. Linklater brought uh, just an interesting swath of classical music throughout the uh, the film. I don't know how much of it had been written in Vienna, but I do feel like Vienna is one of those spaces in Europe that is kind of a hub for a lot of classical music to have been created. And so I, I enjoyed that we had. Um, as I was watching through the credits, it was it was Purcell and Beethoven and Vivaldi and Strauss and Bach all had you know different pieces in here, and so I I liked that he was kind of allowing for that uh, as kind of a, a tone for this this film and the space, but then also that we had some other music throughout, and I liked that that he was kind of giving us a sense of kind of this space, but also these characters. I, I thought that was nice. I love the music and I love the the sense of, of space. I think you're absolutely right. And uh, I, I don't necessarily know that you need to be a classical like fan, but it, it makes it, it's better to know also, I think, that like so much of the where they were is where it was happening. Like Vienna was and just Austria kind of writ large was was a real it was a hotbed for classical heads <laughs> in the 17 and 1800s. Classical heads. <laughs> What was the uh, what was the song that they listened to in the testing booth? Oh, the listening booth. Listening booth. I don't yeah. know. I don't remember what it was. Um, that was. I I really liked that song, and it was it was an interesting song that I don't know if I had heard before. I but I I liked it. Like it just it had this sense to it, and it allowed for kind of a little bit of that romance. Is it "Come Here" by Kath Bloom? Kath Kath Bloom, "Come yeah. Here." Yeah. Okay. I really enjoyed that's the oh this is interesting link letter that's the only time I withheld anything from the cast the lyrics were in the script but they'd never heard the song oh that's sweet that's you know interesting choice yeah that is really interesting the other thing that I wanted to just briefly mention is poetry Uh, you know I kind of talked about how there was this sense of Ethan Hawke being this this young artist who is writing poetry and novels and stuff when he was this in this period of his life and uh, there was this, uh, th- the poem that is in this film here, actually a couple poems, um, I-, I wanted to just mention because I think that that's an interesting element that's, I-, I feel like there's an important part of it to the film. And you get a couple poems that I think uh, there's a, a, a nice sense to it. The first is this poem by David Jewell that was written for the film called Delusion Angel. And I, it is probably one of my favorite moments in the film when this, uh, I don't want to necessarily call him a homeless person, but this person who's panhandling has this method of panhandling where he says, you know, I'm not just asking for money. I will I will write a poem for you. And if you like it, you can give me some money. And I thought that, you know, that was really interesting. I also thought it was really interesting following the moment where she had her palm read, because in a way, in both cases, they were paying for somebody to provide them a service that, you know, they might, you know, might find interesting or not, but they were paying. And he had such criticism for her about the the palm reading, but they both were totally fine and had no issues with paying somebody to write this little poem. But I loved that poem. I, I loved that little poem that he wrote, Delusion Angel. I thought that was great and how they threw the word milkshake at him and he managed to write it in in a really nice way. Yeah, I, I that's it was a fine poem. 
<laughs> it was I wonder like the actor was he a, a street poet like that seems like a link letter thing to do <laughs> I'll give you 50 bucks to be in this movie and write a poem David Jewell wrote the poem he's an American performance so poet. that wasn't the, David the street Jewell, poet was saying. Dominic Castell who played the street yeah. poet so different person bummer so but the other one, and again, I, I just think it's interesting, and it, it for me it fit the tone and the vibe. But it was the it was when they're sitting on the I don't know what it is in the middle of the roundabout or whatever, and he's talking about that Dylan Thomas recording of that W. H. Auden poem as I walked out one evening, and I mean I looked up the lyrics to that. I was I posted a link to that reading in our uh, Discord chat for those of you who are in our Discord community. You can hop into the chat when we're recording these live. And um, I posted it there because I was listening to it. And I think that there's, it is a really romantic poem. And I think there's a lot of, um, I don't know, connection to that poem and the other one to kind of the tone of the film. So I, I like that there is that element to this film. And I don't believe any of the poetry in the movie is by Ethan Hawke. I think that's a <laughs> safe, that's a safe bet. Yeah, you're correct. Any other hot items? No, I think I think that's it. So um, we will be right back, everybody. But first, our credits. The next reel is a production of True Story FM Engineering by Andy Nelson. Music by Ty Simon, Oriel Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. You can find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. Andy, how to do it awards season? Did it win all the things because of all the romance? <laughs> it's an independent film, um, and I think it probably had a harder time uh, because of that, getting the opportunity to be in as many uh, awards uh, circuits. You know, I mean, a lot of times you have to pay to get into these things, and so that's a that is an element for filmmakers. They did get into Sundance. It didn't win anything at Sundance, although it did get distribution. For awards, it did win one award and had seven other nominations. Um, at the Award Circuit Community Awards, um, it was nominated for four awards, but lost all of them. Best Director, lost to David Fincher for seven. Best Leading Actor, but lost to Nicolas Cage for Leaving Las Vegas. Best Leading Actress, lost to Elizabeth Shue, also for Leaving Las Vegas. And Best Original Screenplay, screenplay which lost to Toy Story. At the Berlin International Film Festival, uh, Richard Linklater won the Silver Berlin Bear for Best Director. He was also nominated for the Golden Berlin Bear, but he lost to Bertrand Tavernier for Fresh Bait. At the Chicago Film Critics Association Awards, uh, he, he and Kim were nominated for Best Screenplay, but lost to Christopher McQuarrie for The Usual Suspects. And, of course, the MTV Movie and TV Awards Best Kiss did get nominated, but lost to, you'll like this, Pete, Lauren Hawley and Jim Carrey for Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> <laughs> I what's funny is I would watch every one of the movies that you just referenced before I would watch this again so easily. I think that might be that might be telling about me. Yes. I think so. All right. Uh how about uh at the at the box office? 
seems I don't know is that mean it seems mean I, it's an independent film uh, like but it blew the doors off everybody fell in love with it so surely it made a bazillion dollars For the first film in the story of Jesse and Celine, Linkletter had a budget of $2.5 million, which is $4.2 million in today's dollars. The movie premiered at Sundance, then it opened eight days later on January 27, 1995, in a limited release, where it opened opposite Highlander, The Final Destination, probably something that you also would put on first. <laughs> <laughs> the film opened in 11th place and stayed in theaters for four weeks. It ended up earning $5.5 million domestically and 452000 internationally, for a total gross of $10 million in today's dollars. That lands the film with an adjusted profit per finished minute of 58000 Not a lot, but still something that gener- generated a lot of talk and interest in the core trio at the heart of it, enough to return nine years later. Okay. Okay. I, I hear I'm on board. I'm on the before train, Andy. I'm on it, and I'm going to watch <laughs> the next one and the one after that. You're going to have uh, to. I'm gonna have to. So I'm. It. It didn't. These people don't appeal to me. I hope in age they also gain in uh, charisma. (laughs) Well, much like much like I did. I hope they shake off that Gen X sheen from the nineties. Well, I think that's that's why I think it's going to be an interesting exploration with you who. Yeah. Were this person in 1995, and now I are ashamed of it. Saying that, and now you're ashamed of it, and don't want you, to remember much. that era of your life. And so, and you, are, you, who were this person in the 1990s, and, and are still, still this am. person, is that I'm what you're saying? That's exactly. a contrast. I've not oh, grown right. up at all, Pete. That's that's where I am. <laughs> so we'll see how it works for you as we continue the series to see. You know, every nine years, are we seeing? growth in the characters and and finding a new place for them and uh, where they are in life at the time so you know andy if we were really gonna link later this series we would wait to talk about the next movie for nine years <laughs> that's true we should do that we should we should yeah put a hold on this series for yeah for nine years <laughs> for nine years another 500 movies and then we'll do boyhood but we're gonna just release segments of it <laughs> Or we'll we'll come back and we'll record it every you know six months or year, and then we'll we'll release yeah. our review in twelve years. What do you think? In twelve years, all yeah. at once. Yeah, yeah. but by then, because we have no restraint, it'll be like a thirteen-hour review. <laughs> yeah, it'll yeah it'll be much longer than the movie itself. Yeah. All right, everybody. We'll be right back for our ratings. But first, here's the trailers for next week's movie before sunset. So listen, here's the deal. This is what we should do. You should get off the train with me here in Vienna and come check out the town. What? Come on, it'll be fun. All right. Hey, think of it like this. Um, uh, jump ahead 10, 20 years, and you're married. And only your marriage doesn't have that same energy that it used to have. You start to think about all those guys you've met in your life and what might have happened if you picked up with one of them. Let me get my bag. Nine years ago, two strangers met by chance and spent a night in Vienna that ended before sunrise. They are about to meet for the first time since. Hi. Hello. I I can't believe you're here. Well, I live here in Paris. I wanted to talk to you for so long, you know, then now... Me too. How long do we have? 20 minutes and 30 seconds? Let's go. (laughs) We got more than that. Now they have one afternoon to find out if they belong together. 
I remember that night better than I do entire years. Do you look any different? I do. I'd have to see you naked. What? <laughs> <laughs> Let's get on that boat. Come on, it'll be fun. You don't have time. Oh, God, why don't we exchange phone numbers and stuff? Why don't we do that? Past is the past. It was meant to be that way. What? You really believe that? I have these dreams. I'm in the car, and a buddy of mine is driving me downtown, and I'm staring out the window, and I think I see you. What does it mean, the right man? The love of your life? The concept is absurd. The idea that we can only be complete with another person is evil, right? I'm just happy to see you, even if you've become an angry, manic-depressive activist. I still like you. I still enjoy being around you. Like if somebody were to touch me, I would dissolve into molecules. I see if you stay together or if you dissolve into molecules. How am I doing? What if you had a second chance with the one that got away? It's time for Letterboxd, uh, Andy. Yes, it is. You know what we like? We like Letterboxd. It's our favorite thing. It's our favorite social network for movie lovers. And if you fall in love with it like we have, like we have... You can jump over there and get your own pro or patron membership. You can support the team at Letterboxd. But more than anything, you can get rid of ads, which is great. Just use the discount code NEXTREEL or visit thenextreel.com slash Letterboxd, and it'll knock 20% right off, and it works for renewals as well. Are you a five-star and a big, shining, beating heart? Is that where you are on this? I, I'm laughing because of the the joke, the the in joke that we have from um, I don't know what the finest hours that has finest you know, hours permeated this whole thing for so many years now <laughs> that so many people are going to listen to this and never have any clue as to what you're talking about. It's the strangest. But you don't even don't say joke. it. Just yeah, it's just they won't even know what part of that last sentence was from the finest hours. They'll probably figure it out because it's the one that sounds really weird. We're like, why is he saying it like that? <laughs> the finest hours, folks. Yeah. Film board yeah. episode. We quote, loved it. <laughs> All right. Okay. Um, I, five uh, stars in a heart from Andy. It's not five stars. Uh, but I really, really connect with the characters. I find their journey inspiring and and emotional and really unique. I, I'm, I'm torn if I, if this is a four or a four and a half star for me, it's like in that zone. It's one of those two. I feel like for the moment, I'm going to say four, but that could shift. No, I'm going to just say four and a half. I, I really, I just really loved it. So four and a half. Four and a half. Really tickling the top with that. Um, <laughs> is that how you well, describe it? Well, as, <laughs> as you might, as you might expect. <laughs> Top tickler. Uh, You're a top to real top tickler at four and a half stars. Uh, I uh, don't care for it as much. I am a two star uh, on this one right now. It probably would have been higher. I'm not I'm not even going to give it a heart right now. It's like a two star. It's but, you know, I mean, two star celebrates the things that I did like about it just enough to offset the things that I really didn't. I don't need to watch it again. I'm kind of done. Uh, But I'm but who knows? Maybe. The, the sequel is the one that's going to keep me coming back for more. Maybe that's it. Maybe I just don't like young people. That's probably it. That's probably it. Get off God, my I lawn, I am a Jesse curmudgeon. I'm a curmudgeon. Yeah. <laughs> Go have sex somewhere else. Not my <laughs> lawn. <laughs> well, remember, everybody, go to thenextreel.com slash letterbox. You can get your patron or pro membership, and it does work for renewals as well.
don't forget, we, we you know we've mentioned a few times that you that members get to hear a pre-show chat. There's also a, a post-show. And uh, this is something that you can get by going to thenextreel.com slash membership. And you can learn more about what we offer. You get bonus content in the episodes. You get your episodes early. You get all sorts of just member bonus episodes that only members get to hear. A monthly member bonus episode. We do flick chart re-rankings. We do retakes, which is kind of an overarching look at an entire series after the series is done. So members get tons and tons of stuff. Uh, so check it out. You can learn more about it at thenextreel.com slash membership. So what did you think about Before Sunrise? We want to know. Hop into the Show Talk channel on Discord where we'll be talking about this movie this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterboxd giveth, Andrew. As Letterboxd always doeth. Did you go high or low? I'm at high. Same rating I gave it, four and a half stars. Okay, well, I went low, which is lower than me. Mm, uh, oh. And this is, this is a, a referred uh, a review from uh, who, who did this. This is uh, Blot. Ben Lott just posted <laughs> this, which is a half star from uh, Roundstone who says, quote, white people talking about pseudo-philosophical BS for two hours is so riveting and mind-blowing, end quote. This is like Anne Hathaway's love speech in Interstellar extended to two hours with another person trying really effing hard to hold a conversation with her so he can smash. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Anne Hathaway. You know what? If they remake this movie, that's what's so great about that. This is a bloom and onion of gift that in this review is that I could actually see Anne Hathaway saying I would do that movie. <laughs> I'd play the Julie Delpy role and I'd do it in a French accent. <laughs> uh, uh, what do you got? I've got a four and a half star rating by James Shafrillis, who has this to say, damn, I really wanted to see that play with the cow. <laughs> The guys walking away with making horns on their heads, which is interesting because in France, at least, that means you're a cuckold, right? If somebody does that to you, it's an indicator that your wife is sleeping with somebody else, but you don't know it, that you have horns, but you're not, but you don't know it. And I just, I, I don't know what that means in Austria. Like, is that the same thing? Or is he, was he, or was he literally only, is it just surface? He was only saying that he was a cow. I thought it was surface, but I didn't know all of that. So I just assumed he's like, no, really, I'm the cow. I'm the cow. I, I walk around like a dog and I pick up sticks for people that they throw. He was just so rude uh, about it. Well, not rude. He was of the place. And he uh, I just felt like maybe that was a thing that he was saying, like, you don't know, you're in a rela- you're you're in this budding relationship with this woman. You don't know what everything is about. Like, he was I really see. only rude at the beginning. When he's when they're like English, do you speak English? He's like, could you speak German for a change? <laughs> it was so good. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I nothing. That. I don't know I, nothing. Dankeschön, letterboxed. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. 
and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15-plus years, Transistor has been, hands down, the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, Go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.